I thank God for all who have led us so beautifully in worship today, including our precious children. We are in a sermon series called, What Child Is This? And we're looking at different aspects of Jesus's identity. Today, I want to draw your attention to a classic Advent passage in Matthew chapter 11. I'll read verses 2 through 6 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is Asking About the Messiah. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior, Amen. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for someone to cry out saying something like, Long live Caesar, in order to honor the emperor of Rome. Others might have cried out, Long live Pilate, in order to honor the governor of Judea. Still others might have cried out, long live Herod, in order to honor the ruler of Galilee. But John the Baptist cried out differently in the wilderness because he was among the earliest to believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, if faith were calling shotgun, John would have had the front seat in Mark's gospel. In Mark 1, he says, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. In Luke 3, he says, I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. In Matthew 3, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In John 1, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's faith is clear, ardent, and robust. When his mother Elizabeth was pregnant with him, she encountered Mary who was pregnant with Jesus, and John leaped inside the womb. Later at Jesus' baptism, John saw the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus and heard the voice from heaven announcing, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well 
pleased. John had the inside scoop from the start. He cried out in the wilderness, prepared the way for Jesus, and set the tone for others with strong faith of his own. So what in the world is going on in Matthew 11? What is happening here? After all this, why would John send his disciples to Jesus to ask, look, are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? After all of his bold proclamations about Jesus, is John now wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah? After all of his prophetic pronouncements about Jesus, is John now having second thoughts? And what has prompted his misgivings? Could it be his troublesome predicament? John has been imprisoned for his prophetic ministry. According to the ancient historian Josephus, the site of John's imprisonment was Herod Antipas's desert fortress called Macarus. People all around John were saying, Long live Herod! While John languished in cruel confinement. His question, therefore, sprouts from the soil of a dark, dank, and depressing prison cell. It wouldn't be surprising for circumstances to prompt John's question. Uh, uh, you know, personal hardships can cause us to question our faith. As a pastor, I've seen people question their faith after losing a job. I've seen people question their faith after a disturbing diagnosis. I've had my own questions as well under duress. Back in 2012, after five years in North Carolina, my wife Dana and I had finally established a sense of financial stability. Then a church in Tennessee called us. We prayed about it, talked about it, analyzed the situation ad nauseum, and finally determined that God was calling us to Tennessee. So off we went. After one year in Tennessee, we still had not sold our house back in North Carolina. We were paying two mortgages every month. Our savings had dwindled significantly, and suddenly we owed a large amount in taxes. I remember driving home from the CPA's office thinking, Lord, you called us here. But things have only gotten more difficult. We can't sell our house in North Carolina no matter how much we pray or how hard we try. We're running out of money and we've got two little girls to raise. Why would you call us here for things to be harder on us? Did you call us here? Of course, this was small potatoes compared to others' trials. But I understand why John might shift from ardent faith to earnest questions. 
He had gone from baptizing at the Jordan River to withering in prison chains. He had gone from preparing the way of the Lord to preparing for another eerie night of incarceration. Questions, doubts, and second thoughts sometimes surface amid storms of adversity. But we can take our doubts and follow John by entrusting our questions to Jesus. Notice that John did not consult a third party, nor did he take a poll from the local priests to get their opinion. He asked Jesus if Jesus was the Messiah. John thus exemplifies trust amid confusion. He demonstrates how to hold faith and doubt together by taking our questions to Jesus and trusting him for the answer. Yet, the text suggests another reason for John's doubts. Verse 2 says, when he heard what the Messiah was doing, he sent word. When he heard what the Messiah was doing, it appears that Jesus' activities did not meet John's expectations. John's concern may have been less about his personal predicament and more about his checklist for the Messiah. John was expecting the Messiah to come with the force of a wildfire, not the gentle flame of a candle. John was expecting decisive judgment and unmistakable clout, not tender compassion and humble meekness. He had heard Jesus was out teaching in the backwoods of Galilee, not scaling the ladder of power in Jerusalem. He had heard Jesus was out healing the common folk, not positioning himself for political influence. He had heard Jesus was out serving the marginalized, not winning over the aristocracy. How was Jesus to be king when he had no discernible political ambition? How was he to govern when, unlike Aaron Burr in Hamilton, Jesus did not want to be in the room where it happens? What does a Messiah do if not take over? Messiah, after all, means anointed one, God's chosen king. A Messiah is a monarch, a ruler. Did Jesus not get the job description? Rather than elbowing his way to a seat of earthly authority, Jesus had been busy reviving a 12-year-old girl who had flatlined, healing a woman with a long-standing issue of blood, helping blind men to be able to see, cleansing a man from leprosy, and healing people of various illnesses and ailments, did he not know, as Bible scholar Douglas Hare notes, that nobody in first century Judaism expected the Messiah to appear as a healer? Although Jesus had come and 
was active on the scene, John scratched his head, looked around and saw that wicked leaders were still in charge. Righteous persons were still in prison. Evil and suffering were still pervasive. Injustice and corruption were still widespread. And violence and exploitation were still the everyday routine. He may have wondered what kind of Messiah ministers out in the boonies while all this madness continues unabated. Evidently, the kind that says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kind that says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The kind that says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The kind that says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kind that says, do not resist an evil doer, but if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. The kind that says, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. The kind that says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added unto you. Jesus is a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. He is an unconventional ruler with an unconventional rule. When he receives John's question, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Jesus does not scold John, nor does he belittle him. Instead, he replies, go and tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Jesus is quoting prophecies in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, in order to show that while he might not be meeting certain expectations, he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. John had asked a yes or no question. But Jesus did not offer a yes or no answer. Faith is not always so black and white. Jesus' response is indirect, yet substantive. It supplies evidence for consideration, yet leaves the decision of faith in John's hands. And now it leaves the decision of faith in our hands. Do we believe that Jesus is God's anointed one? Or do we wait for another? Do we trust that Jesus is God's chosen king? Or do we look for somebody else? Do we have faith in Jesus and his understanding of God's kingdom? Or do we wait for a political ruler or a military hero. Our response, like Jesus's, should involve deeds, not just 
words, our response like Jesus's should involve actions, not just a speech, for belief is confirmed by behavior, or as Jesus says shortly, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. It reminds me of a recent article about a lamentable growing trend in the U.S. More and more people are living in their cars. According to journalist Rukmini Kalamaki, many working Americans earn too little to afford rent, but too much to receive government assistance and have turned their cars into a form of affordable housing. They use the back seat as a bedroom, the roof as a dining room table, and the trunk as a closet. They bathe in restrooms at state parks. They are called the mobile homeless. According to anthropologist Graham Press, tens of thousands of people are living in their vehicles. One of them was a woman named Crystal Audette. Ms. Audette works a full-time job in Seattle at the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services. She doesn't judge the residents who come to her for assistance because she understands firsthand the struggle to afford both food and housing. For a while, a Methodist church in the area allowed Ms. Audette to use their parking lot so that she wouldn't have her car impounded due to repeated parking tickets. These church folks believe in a different kind of cane. More recently, Miss Audette got a rare opportunity to get into an affordable one-bedroom unit, but the initial fees, the upfront costs, were just too much for her to cover. When the Methodist Church found out about her situation, they stepped in and covered the initial payment, and Miss Audette moved in and it was a life changer for her. Somebody ought to say, long live Jesus. Some years ago, there was a man in a tiny southern town who was barely scraping by on low wages for manual labor. Then he developed a terrible toothache. He tried to tough it out for a week or two, but his tooth was killing him all day, every day. He finally visited a doctor who diagnosed him with a tooth abscess and said he needed oral surgery and a tooth extraction as soon as possible. Problem was the procedure cost $700 and the man did not have anything close to $700. Knowing about the situation, his girlfriend went to discuss this with her pastor, and her pastor turned out to be me. I met with the man and told him the church would be glad to cover the cost of his procedure, and he looked at me like I had three heads. What, he asked? Totally incredulous, not understanding at all that church folks believe in a different kind of king. I said, look, our church has funds that we use to help people, and we would be very happy to cover the cost of your procedure. He said, but I don't even go to your church. Why would you do this? Why? And he had all these questions. 
And his girlfriend finally said, it's because they love Jesus. Eventually, he agreed to the procedure, and it was a life changer for him. Somebody ought to say, long live Jesus. A few months ago, 15 men arrived in our country for the very first time. They were refugees with nothing but the clothes on their backs. They had no money. They knew no English. They were living in abject poverty in a new and foreign land. A few members of a certain church worked together to befriend them, to secure them emergency short-term housing, to obtain food for them, and to help them start looking for prospects for work. This required time, energy, money, coordination, expertise, and compassion from people who believe in a different kind of king. But it was life-changing for these men. That church, by the way, is our church. I could tell you countless stories about the life-changing work of this amazing congregation called Second Baptist Richmond, but I'll just say, long live King Jesus. We serve a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. Jesus did not come to hobnob with big wigs, but to help the marginalized. He did not come to schmooze the aristocracy, but to support the impoverished. To paraphrase Bible scholar Ben Witherington III, Jesus did not come to meet expectations, but to meet needs. Indeed, Jesus is the Messiah, not so much because he met messianic standards, but because he set them. The Messiah was supposed to overthrow Rome, but Jesus preached nonviolent resistance instead. The Messiah was supposed to run the government, but Jesus brought the transcendent kingdom of God instead. The Messiah was supposed to come with force, but Jesus came with compassion instead. It was vital for him to start helping John and others adjust to a new set of messianic standards because there's no evidence whatsoever in first century Judaism that anybody expected the Messiah to die on a cross. His death would have been the most scandalous aspect of his entire messiahship because he was crucified as a victim of the system rather than glorified as its figurehead. Behold the king, a baby born in a stable and laid in a borrowed feeding trough. Behold the king, a kid who grew up in a no-name town in a low-income family. Behold the king, a healer who ministered to the poor, the outcast, the sick, and the downtrodden. Behold the king, a teacher of radical love who was rejected by the religious establishment. Behold the king, a criminal convicted, arrested, tried, and executed by the Romans. Behold the king who was baptized 
by the riverside, who preached on a mountainside, who healed by the lakeside, who forgave out in the countryside, who was denied by the fireside, who was crucified on a hillside, and who was raised by the graveside, and who is always by our side. This is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Long live Jesus. Amen.